So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Mitty Owens, who's been a 30-plus year public servant. He's worked, some of the highlights are he's worked at the Ford Foundation, he's worked for New York City Office of Financial Empowerment, NYU's Research Center for Leadership in Action. Um, there's so much more. Mitty, tell us, what are you doing right now? What kind of work are you doing right now? So, uh, hi, Lev. It's a pleasure to, to join you and to be on this program. So right now, I'm the co-director of the People's Solar Energy Fund. We support uh, local nonprofits and cooperatives in many cities around the country to develop solar with an eye towards ownership of solar, and particularly for low-income and BIPOC communities. So expanding the benefits of solar, the health benefits, the green jobs, and of course, the reduced energy burden and long-term planet sustainability, but also the opportunity for economic development and ownership for low-income and BIPOC communities, the People's Solar Energy Fund. Look us up. Very cool. Very, very cool. Um, I should also say that I, Mitty is former neighbor, uh, a friend, and <laughs> one of the nicest people that I know. So I'm I'm very excited to have you on, oh. Mitty. Today, we are, we are not going to be talking about I don't think we're going to be talking about solar energy, but we are going to be talking about Cuba. So let's get into it. When is the first time you went to Cuba? Why did you go? And, and how many times have you been since? Right. So we're talking about Cuba because I have this great interest in Cuba, having gone to Cuba with a group called Global Exchange out of the Bay Area of California um, in 96. Um, and they're a very progressive group that that wanted to show solidarity with Cuba and have a people-to-people -people exchange to show people what Cuba's really like, uh, contrary to all the mythologies of what we hear from our government and the corporate press. And so I was pretty blown away. I was a young person in my uh, early 20s at that point doing community development in North Carolina with a group called Self-Help Development Finance. And so I had this orientation towards social justice community development, both uh, domestically and globally. And I'd done some travel before and I lived in Zimbabwe many years ago. So I was really intrigued by Cuba. And um, and it was, yeah, it was a great initial experience. And then since then, I just came back in October from my eighth trip in just a couple of weeks ago. Okay. And, and in what ways, broadly speaking, has the country changed since you first went? Well, I mean, unfortunately... <laughs> When I went, it had already been experiencing a hardship, the special period with the Soviet Union pulling back from its support. Um, of course, this was so necessary because the U.S. blockade started just after Cuba's revolution in 1959. The U.S. said, well, you're not going to allow the maintenance of corporate interests and the wealthy running things, then we are going to not only withdraw support, we're going to block trade and Keep in mind, the Cubans don't just call it a, um, a an embargo, but they call it el bloqueo because it's a blockade. We prevent, we fine other uh, companies in other um, countries from doing business in Cuba. So, and it's gotten worse. So this is now a 60 plus year economic blockade. And it's gotten worse because Cuba, Trump put Cuba on the state sponsors of terrorism list and Biden has not lifted that because of all the political 
maneuvering the interests of the Cuban right wing in Florida and the lack of spine of the Democratic Party, not wanting to, God forbid, they should take a strong progressive stand on anything they might lose, some middle of the road people. So <laughs> Cuba has been suffering greatly from 60 plus years of an economic blockade and even worse, because when you're on the state sponsors of terrorism list, that means that even countries and banking institutions that don't share the U.S.'s view, which is most of the world, as a matter of fact, the U.N. just voted in the last two days, once again, against the U.S. blockade, all the nations in the world, except U.S., Israel, and a couple of little lackey countries that we get to go along with it. The rest mm. of the world every year says this blockade is wrong. It's against international law. We, we have many differences with many countries around the world which have blatant human rights violations, assassinating journalists, whether it's in Latin America or, or Saudi Arabia's sawing up of a journalist live, and you can hear it on the tape. I mean, ongoing, horrible, horrible exploitation of people, and human rights violations that are blatant, assassinations, etc. And we still trade with them and we believe in diplomacy to try to move them towards democracy if we're even trying that. But here with Cuba, we, we have a posture that's completely bullying this small country of 11 million people just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And we've been doing that and with terrorist attempts as well. We've bombed Cuba literally many, many times. We've had at least, even the CIA acknowledges, at least eight assassination attempts against uh, against Fidel Castro. That's Those are the ones that the CIA acknowledges let alone the many other uh, more. And then there were many terrorist, uh, not just attempts, but terrorist um, efforts, bombing a hotel and blowing up a airline that killed the entire Cuban fencing team um, back in the 70s. So really horrible things. They've been the victims of terrorism, the object of terrorism, but instead they're put on the terrorist list along mm. with the other countries, what Syria, Iran, and I forget the other one. Um, so it's just really horrendous. So they're really suffering. So to your question, they were already suffering from all of that. They're suffering even more now. People say it's even worse because of these recent developments. And so there's a great brain drain. Even people who believe in the revolution and who recognize the great benefits of, of uh, that they've received from the society, incredible education, healthcare, et cetera, even many of them are like, look, the first opportunity I have to leave, I will leave because there's no opportunity here. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily because of government policy, but because this blockade is so terrible. We must end the blockade. Okay, so I what prompted this conversation is that I received um, some slides that you put together from a talk that you gave in October for Black Yearlies. It says, Cuba <laughs> talk for Black Yearlies. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering, um, what made you want to reach out to, to Black Yalies uh, and, and specifically talk about Cuba and what can, can Black people, Black Americans expect to find in Cuba? Yeah, so shout out to my Black Yaley colleagues. I'm a, I'm a Yale alum. And so this relatively new group that's pulled together has been having very interesting talks and shout out to them for saying, hey, we'd love to hear about Cuba. Um, and it's particularly interesting because a group back in 2016 of black graduate students, a black uh, a reading group at Yale actually led a trip to Cuba and they were studying about global imperialism and they wanted to go to Cuba and they had an amazing experience and made a film, uh, Yale Yale and Cuba, it's called. I encourage people to see it. It's not a great film, but it's quite intriguing. Mm -hmm. So, but even beyond that, there's a very interesting history of Cuba and black folks. I mean, black folks internationally, because first of all, Cuba, is, I mean, it depends how you define race or whatever, but at least 40 to 60% black. I mean, there's almost everyone has some color in them. There are very few white Cubans. There are some, 
but uh, a lot of mixed and a whole lot of folks who are clearly just straight up black, uh, you know, Afro-Cubano. And that's particularly in Santiago in the far eastern part of the, of the country. But in Matanzas, even in Havana, very strong concentrations. And the Afro, more importantly, even the African influence is throughout the country. There's nothing in Cuba that is not influenced fundamentally. And they acknowledge it by Africa, the spirituality, the music, the culture, and they 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 embrace that. Everyone knows that. They will say, my roots are in Africa. It's, it's amazing, even if you're talking to a white looking person. So there's deep, deep connections to Africa and to black folks. And then Cuba in a revolutionary spirit, and because of that being part of the diaspora, they lent themselves to great support of African liberation struggles. So people might know this, but the Cubans stood up to the South Africans, um, not in South Africa, but in the, some of the surrounding states and helping against the Portuguese. So some of the South Southern African independent struggles in Namibia, um, um, in, in, in Mozambique were aided very, very uh, much by the Cubans in Angola in particular. And so the Cubans are very proud of that. And people around the world see that solidarity. Nelson Mandela named Cuba as one of its greatest friends and embraced Fidel, for which he got a lot of flack. And then Black Americans, when Cuba, when Fidel came here and was snubbed by the elites here uh, from going to some honorary dinner or whatever, he, and, he, and from staying downtown, he went up to Harlem and stayed at the Hotel Teresa and he met with Malcolm X. So there are these wonderful pictures with Malcolm X mm -hmm. and uh, the Black community really solidified his, his great ties with Black America as well as the rest of the Black world. So there's been strong interest in that Asada Shakur, who was a Black Liberation Army um, leader uh, had been arrested and actually managed to escape in the 70s and made it to Cuba. And she's been living there. And in my first trip with Global Exchange, we actually were part uh, of a group that interviewed her. And it was wow. just an amazing experience meeting with her and seeing her and seeing and experiencing her full humanity. That's what she talked about. She didn't talk about politics. She said, here in Cuba, I just feel like mm -hmm. a full human being. Not No corporate logos, no no uh, 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 you know tag on my back and target of me, I, I just feel like a full human being. And that was a beautiful thing that is just, I've carried with me through all my experiences. I just see the great full humanity. If this country was allowed economically to thrive, you would see just a phenomenal place of entrepreneurship and creativity and compassion and community. So again, I come back to, we got to end that blockade. Yeah, I, I think it's a difficult task to to try to measure something like how how much racism exists in a society but when you were in cuba do you feel like they were able to eliminate totally or mostly eliminate signs of racism yeah great question i mean cuba made explicit from day one in fidel's speeches his long speeches and his uh, treatises and many books against various forms of discrimination, initially focused so much on gender and race. Uh, we'll come back to homophobia, heterosexism, we'll come back to that, because that was not an area of enlightenment originally of the revolution. But mm -hmm. gender, absolutely. Um, position of women, women should be in all places and high places in government, and 40%, uh, no, I'm sorry, 50% of the National Assembly, at least, is women. I think that might be mandated, I'm not sure, but, but de facto it is. Um, and in terms of race, very, very explicit policies around affirmative action, um, around trying to end personal prejudice and ways, people's ways of thinking, but also systemically, structurally to fight against it. Now, here's the great catch, right? The Cuban Revolution occurred four months before my oldest brother was born. Mm. 
right? He's 60 years old. That's, you know, I mean, I'm sorry, he's 65 years old. So that's, that's just, a, a, you know, a, a, a stone's throw away in, in, in the arc of history, right? That's a, a blink of an eye. So for anyone to expect, and I've heard this from some black folks of God, so I still see some prejudice. Of course you do. You had just hundreds of years of a, of a system that was rooted in slavery, absolute slavery, and then shifting from slavery to serfdom and sharecropping and complete apartheid. Um, you know, black folks owned nothing and were relegated to the worst positions and um, no political power whatsoever. And it was, it was, it was, you know, class and race totally correlated in Cuba. And so in 65 years, they have moved just tremendously moving that needle. So you see black folks in all positions, but at the same time, I will say very personally, I struggle. You know, I got this, you know, I, I felt this way and I you know, believe in the spirit of the revolution and what they stood for. But then I realized a couple of trips ago, why are most of the Airbnbs where I'm staying? And there are a lot of Airbnbs and whether it's under Airbnb or other Casa Particulares, people renting out their homes, totally legal. It's very, very common and a wonderful way to be there. Why are most of them basically sort of white-ish Cubans? They're certainly not Afro-Cuban. And why are most of the taxi drivers of these old vintage cars, the really nice ones that are driving people around, making some of the good tourist dollars, why are they all very, very light-skinned? I was like, this is really troubling. Is this continuing discrimination? And I had to think about it and talk to some people. Well, how do you get one of those cars? And how do you get one of those houses? Up until a few years ago, you couldn't even transfer the sale. You can even transfer the ownership of those things. Those were purely by inheritance. And still, for the most part, they're by inheritance. Well, who owned assets before? It was only the white rich folks. Mm -hmm. Black folks didn't have any of that. So the cars that they're driving around, the, the houses that they're you know, renting out today are the property of that belonged to their grandparents. So they're the beneficiaries of a legacy of racism and 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 you know pre-revolution. And the only way to undo that is if the revolution had taken all property to redistribute. Oh, imagine if they had done that. I mean, the US mm -hmm. and other capitalist countries were up in arms already, but Cuba, contrary to popular myth, did not take all property. If you left the country, they took your property, expropriated it, and they paid you, by the way. We knew a family growing up, a family in New York, who were continuing to get payments for the property they had abandoned in Cuba. That's pretty amazing. I don't wow. know if I would have done that. Mm. But if you stayed, you were allowed to continue owner ownership of a property in the city and a property in the country and a car. And so these folks who stayed have that. So the only way that it's really now becoming more democratized and distributed is first of all more housing being built and more some some sale now that's beginning and, and it's allowed and people are gaining their resources to do that and of course intermarriage so you don't just have white families owning these because there's so much intermarriage and so much racial mixing in cuba but that's the history and so that doesn't change and also beyond just the structural which of course i think is the fundamental problem prejudice personal prejudice doesn't just die away you know, you're still in the house of your grandparents. And if they're favoring the light-skinned child over the dark-skinned child, that child's probably going to feel that. But Cuba's making such a concerted effort through its mass advertising, through its programming, through its the role models you see on TV and in government and your teachers to counter that, that I really feel confident that in 30 years, the trajectory for Cuba is that race will really be almost a non-issue in like 30 years. Can we say mm -hmm. that about the U.S.? We have slipped 
backwards. We're less enlightened, we're more polarized, we're more angry, more hatred, more venom around race than ever. But Cuba, I think that trajectory is, is strong. The, the caveat there is that while Cuba was moving greatly towards a society of more egalitarianism and equality, there's something called the Gini coefficient, I know you're familiar with it, which measures inequality, and Cuba had one of the lowest rates of the, the Gini coefficient some years ago. Because of the blockade and the terror being on the terrorist list, because of the economy being so bad, people are coming to rely more and more on remittances. Well, who has the ability to send remittances and larger remittances in mm. again is the folks who left a long time ago and who have money. So the more white Cubans are getting greater remittances and with people having to rely more and more on that, the disparity between rich and poor or yeah, and there is rich and poor. I mean, there's no, there's very little misery and abject poverty, but there's certainly poor and there's a growing rich population, but nothing like you see in almost any other country. But there are disparities. And that is troubling. That is troubling. And that's furthering the racial divide as well. So that is the counter to what I'm saying. If you could take away the blockade and the remittances dependence, you would see a trajectory that really would have uh, black, white and everything in between, I think, on very equal footing in a mere 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm wondering whether or not you think there's a relationship then between the extent that a country is capitalist and, and racism. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't adhere to the belief that, that capitalism is the sole cause of racism. Um, it, it's a complex dynamic, but I do think that it greatly exacerbates, not just exacerbates, it drives it. There is personal prejudice in the world, and you'll find that all over the world to some degree in different forms, personal prejudice. And prejudice does not necessarily mean racism. Prejudice is just that prejudging, you're not familiar. I got to tell you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own up to something. You know, being at the Palestine support march on Saturday was very, yesterday, was uh, two days ago, was very important for me mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. Uh, primarily because of what it stood for and the great diversity of people who were there and all the issues that came together fighting global imperialism. But it was also important for me because I am not around that many Arab and Muslim folks on a regular basis in a personal way. I'm ashamed to admit that in New York, I really do have friends and colleagues who are Arab and Muslim. And to be in that crowd with them and to hear their voices on stage representing their own self-determination was really powerful, particularly the women. Mm -hmm. And it made me realize how much I've internalized some of that Islamophobia and Arabophobia that we hate to admit, but even I have been, have been you know, prey to that. Um, it's just so insidious. So, so that prejudice uh, can be there, but when, it's, but when it's driven by financial interests, that are deliberately setting up classes of people to be slaves, to be enslaved people based on the color of their skin, you know, to, 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 to create a, a sort of caste system based on race to perpetuate those class interests, then that's the driver that perpetuates. It's not just so I can overcome my Arab and Islamophobia, that prejudice by just being open-minded and making a concerted effort. But if I live in a society like Israel, which makes Palestinians second-class citizens, structurally, that just perpetuates that notion. 
So, so there, you know, we, it's a complex dynamic. I think capitalism definitely is a driver, but it's, it's not the sole factor. And you'll see various forms of prejudice, but racism, which is that prejudice combined with power. When you don't just have your personal prejudice, but you have the power to institutionalize that, to discriminate against people and to make other people second-class citizens and deny them access to resources, that's when you're talking about racism. So you... You've traveled a lot. I, I remember you start, I'd be coming home and I'd see you getting out of a taxi and you come back from, you know, some like Italy or something in the middle of November. And it seemed like, oh, this guy's got a really great life. <laughs> uh, so you've lived, you've lived in a number of countries and seen lots of the world. I'm wondering if, and you've seen poverty in lots of the world. Yeah. And, and let's just take the Caribbean, for example. If you took the average poor person or just the average person in the Dominican Republic or in Guyana, would they be better off in Cuba? And if so, why? Maybe you can talk about things like the health system and the education system. And if not, also talk about why maybe even if you're going to be really poor living in the Dominican Republic, it's better to live there than in Cuba. Yeah, so first of all, Mark, your temper, your 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 prefatory remark. So I've not lived around the world. I lived <laughs> years ago. My other things are short or short stints visiting places, uh, mainly the global south. I did have a wonderful trip to Italy a few years ago. Um, but yeah, I try to prioritize the global south to get to know it. And and I had lived in Zimbabwe, yes. Um, so, um, but you know, I love your question. And I love the fact that you qualified it by saying, where so, sort of essentially, where would you rather be poor? In the world, because people say, "Where would you rather live?" Yeah, mm -hmm. well, most of us who are asking that question are asking it from our middle class perspective, where we make a lot of assumptions about what we have access to and the opportunities. But the the reality in the world is that the vast majority of the people's uh, of the population is not only poor but lives in misery. When I was at the Ford Foundation, this was profound. This was really disturbing, but profound. Ford Foundation's work in helping people. I don't know if we ever said this publicly, but internally, our goal was not to get people out of poverty. It was not fighting poverty. It was to get people up to poverty mm -hmm. from misery. Mm -hmm. There's that much abject poverty and misery. Poverty was defined again by the sociologists, but at least there's a level of stability. Misery is there's no stability whatsoever. You are completely thrown to the, the wild and you have nothing to rely on. And that is the vast majority of the world's population, which is just inexcusable in the face of just the enormous wealth that exists, that has existed, you know, for centuries. And that particularly now with IT and just with Musk running up to the, the moon, et cetera, it's crazy that we're talking about a world with so much misery, right? So the question is, where would you rather be poor in the world? And by far, it is Cuba, even under the current situations, because Cubans, this is one of the frustrations I have with talking to some of the younger people. I understand where they're coming from, totally. But they say, we have nothing. We have nothing, right? It's like, you take for granted the fact that you have, let's start with portable water, right? Just, you assume safe drinking water anywhere you go in Cuba. Can you assume that in Haiti, in Colombia, in Mexico, and most, most of the global South, anywhere you go, portable water? No, you can't assume that. You have safety. There are no guns, no drugs. Barely any violence in Cuba. Let me repeat that. No guns other than the little pistols that the police carry. And let me say, the, I've, like you said, I've been around the world. I have never seen 
such an unintimidating police force as the Cuban police. Mm -hmm. No bulletproof vest, nothing bigger than pistol. I have never, never seen anything bigger than a pistol. Go to Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, whatever. Big AK-47s, flat jackets, all this equipment. Cuba, none of that. They're sitting around licking ice cream cones and standing around talking to the people. So a country that basically is held down by this dictatorship and this police apparatus, mm, I don't think so. What does New York City got? 36,000 cops? I don't know what the numbers are in Havana, but A, nothing like the police presence here. So I'm saying a lot of things at once. So safety, mm -hmm. right? People take safety. If women walk through the street two or three in the morning, I've experienced it. I felt bad. I'm walking through and it's not lit and I'm walking by and a woman's coming down the way. I'm mm. thinking, what can I do to signal to her that she's safe? She doesn't step to the side. She continued to sashaying right down the street, right by me. <laughs> totally safe. I was like, wow, that's incredible. And my daughter and I felt that because I took two trips with my daughter. And, you know, we were out late at night. And at first, she and my then girlfriend went with us too. Late at night, no street lights, whatever. At first, the first couple of days, they felt nervous. After two days, we were like, hey, we just chill in the street. You know? <laughs> it's, it's great. So all of that to be taken for granted, no, especially as a woman, but as, and as a poor person, because poor people are preyed upon even more, we know. Um, so that's great. And then you've got education, 100% literacy. I'm not just talking about basic literacy. I'm talking about real literacy, critical thinking. Anyone can grab your phone out of your hand and show you, look up like a map. Or I mean, they're critical thinkers, very literate. And then healthcare. I mean, again, there are limitations right now in terms of supplies and pharmaceuticals. Great limitations. I mean, really unfortunate limitations, extensive. But they have a healthcare system that's open and free to everyone. And people from around the world have come and studied some of the innovation that Cuba's developed. And they have a medical system uh, and a medical school which trains folks from around the world with an emphasis on folks from Africa and the Caribbean and Black Americans and Latinx Americans who can come and study medicine for free in Cuba. This is not a myth. This is real. I have met the students. You can go online. There were report mm -hmm. outs from like 100 something students from America, from the United States who have studied in Cuba and got quality educations. And of course, the U.S. medical system puts them through the ringer, but they have eventually passed their, you know, boards or whatever, and they're they're acting as, as doctors, either here or around the world. So, you know, I say while the U.S. sends weapons around the world, Cuba sends doctors around the world, because I should mm -hmm. have specified that. Not only do they train, they are known for sending doctors around the world. But back to, so, so essentially, yes, there is a safety net for people in Cuba which again, is, this is why America has to work so hard to the, the power elite to, to crush this system because it's a system that is designed to work for the people. A little country with barely any resources, if they can educate everyone and have a higher literacy rate than us and provide public health for everyone more than us, have a COVID rate that was basically non-existent, very few mortalities. They developed five vaccines. They were, they were not fully developed. They were, they were researching five vaccines, two of which they completed and their country had like an 86 percent vaccination rate. Mm. You know, not mandated, but this is what people they trusted the government and they trusted their medical system and they had very, very little um infection by 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 COVID. So again, that's a taste of the types of things. Children are revered in Cuba. I mean, the the, the school uh, many buildings are crumbling in Havana because they're the oldest of the country. Most of the country, the buildings are not crumbling. 
when people see pictures of Cuba, they, it's Havana where the buildings are crumbling because mm. the revolution decided explicitly they were not going to dump all their resources, like many countries, into the capital city. They were going to spread it out around the country, mm. into rural areas, etc. So Havana has these old buildings, many of which were mansions from the extreme elite that live there, and many of them are crumbling, right? But the schools, I went into one building and I was like, wow, this is in pristine condition. I asked someone, is this like the, the mayor's office? And he looked at me strange. He's like, no. So what is it? It's a student center. Mm. The more pristine marble, clean, just everything's in perfect shape for students. That's the prioritization. So, you know, there's, there's no society that's perfect. Um, let me segue into criticism of, of the government. People have deep reverence for Fidel and the revolution. Deep, deep, deep reverence. Some people even think he was a deity, surviving all those assassination attempts and being so incredible. Um, at the same time, there's serious critique of the current government. And my Spanish is not good enough. I'm not proficient to understood the, the, the nuance with taxi drivers and other folks, and they speak very fast, like me as a New Yorker, but um, so it's hard to follow. <laughs> what exactly is it about this government? Is it just that they've inherited this terrible legacy of 60 plus years of embargo, of a blockade, and then the state sponsored terrorism list, so things are so bad? Or is it something about the government itself? They're not listening to people or whatever, and there seems to be something about it. And it's not a Castro for people who don't know. They transferred from Fidel to Raul to out, out of Castro's. There are no Castro's in the, leading the government. It is truly a transfer of power to, it's not a dynasty. And they have a national assembly and people vote. So it's, there are many things, many myths that need to be debunked about Cuba. And when you see pictures of elections, if people look at my slideshow, you see the elections that took place and how they do elections. Children are standing there saluting as people come in. And talk about inculcating a child into the importance of voting. You've been there for years saluting people coming in to vote to do that that great honor, and you're when you get out. Of course, you're going to vote. So they have a they have a a eighty on 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 average an eighty five percent voter participation rate. Voting is not mandated. It is not mandated, and yet they have an eighty five percent. This is from Amnesty International, other Human Rights Watch, other groups that that acknowledge this, and I have this in my slideshow. It's phenomenal. They they vote, but for a parliament, and the parliament then selects the leadership. You know, I'm not saying it's the totally most democratic process or whatever, but we have an electoral college and we have only millionaires that can actually make it through campaign without campaign finance reform. There are all sorts of uh, roadblocks to true democracy that countries have. Look at England, our number one ally in the world. People don't stop to think about it. Everyone knows there's a monarchy and they just wave that to the side. It doesn't have power. He or she doesn't have power. Well, first of all, they appoint the prime minister and they do have veto power over legislation in England. But second to that, even if you put that aside, there are two houses of parliament in England. No one thinks about this. I didn't think about this until I was doing my last slideshow. What are those two houses of parliament? One of them is the House of Lords. <laughs> the yeah. House of Lords. They're, they're purely by their birthright as wealthy nobility, which basically means they're 99.9% .9 white men. And they're there for life. This is our number one ally in the world to promote democracy under a monarchy, and half of its parliament, completely elite aristocrats, non, not accountable in any way to the people. So we have to really stop and question when we throw out these labels about democracy and representation. It requires much more analysis than that to understand the manipulation and basically who's providing for their people and who's not. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have much time. There's a lot of places I'd like to go. Um, let me ask you a quick question. Would you say that it's, would you say that it's fair? Would you call Cuba a democracy? 
No, I wouldn't call. Well, no, that's that's hard. So people again, what's defined democracy? People vote. They do vote. They do. They vote for their national assembly representatives. By the way, Elian Gonzalez, who people might remember, the child who was found floating on a raft because his mm-hmm. mother took him across the terrible strait, and they all died except for this kid. It was amazing. They found him, mm-hmm. and then he had a father back home, and his father wanted him to return, but the right wing Cubans in Florida said, "No, no, no, we're not going to return him." He finally, fortunately, the Clinton administration backed his return, and he went back to Cuba. Elian Gonzalez is a proud member of the National Assembly of Cuba. Wow. He's a college graduate, he's an engineer, and he's a member of the National Assembly. People vote. So what defines democracy? I mean, you know, I mean, we vote here, and yet we all know that the meaning of our vote, the power of our vote, especially after Citizens United, means so little and with an electoral college. So I I have trouble answering that question. I, I would maybe say this. Is Cuba any less democratic than the United States? Mm-hmm. I would I would actually say that there's a very good argument to say no. It is no less democratic. Put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that's a fair answer. So this will be our this will be our last question. Um, you talked about global exchange, and I've done a global exchange trip. With students, actually, we went to Nicaragua. It was a, a wonderful experience, cool. and um, and that's one way that people can get to Cuba. How how else can just like the average, say, the average New Yorker go to Cuba? Thank you for asking, because there's such misinformation about this or misunderstanding. You can go directly to Cuba with no special permission. Well, slight caveat: very simple special permission. The Treasury Department still has these stupid fourteen categories that pop up and you have to check them. (laughs) And one of them is support for the Cuban people, by which our government means supporting them to understand how bad their system is and how wonderful Mm. our system is. But fortunately, that that fine text is not there. Um, So you can just interpret it every way you want. And so I check it off, um, support for the Cuban people. And the only other caveat is that you shouldn't be staying in government-run hotels, which I don't do anyway. I want to stay with the people in the Casa Particulares, and it's much cheaper. Because technically, the government could monitor you and could prosecute you if you were supporting the government by staying in the government hotels. Mm-hmm. They actually, the, they, the Airbnb exists there because our government does allegedly want to support private enterprise there. So you are actually in sync with our government's interests if you are going to private restaurants and and staying in the Casa Particulares. So there's, there's you don't have to feel like you know you you have to hide um, and duck and cover. Um, you can go simply by checking off support for the Cuban people. If you're with a group and you want to go uh, as a group um, and stay in a government hotel, something like that, then you apply for a special license and you check off that education group. But if you just want to go, you and a couple of friends, and you're not going to be you know, doing the government hotel thing, it is so simple. And in terms of flying from the East Coast, you can fly direct, a few flights, not as many as they used to be under Obama, Direct from Newark on United, within three and a half hours, you can be from Newark into Havana in three and a half hours for about 450 bucks. Otherwise, you go through Miami and usually they're quick connections. So it's only like six hours in total. It's amazing, right? One of the most amazing experiences, transformative experiences in this wonderful, beautiful tropical island, uh, you know, for, for so cheap. And you can stay there for $25, $30 a night in a nice house. So it's amazing on all levels. Cuba is just a fantastic vacation. By the way, I forgot to say, 90% of the people in Cuba own their own homes. 90% of the people own their homes. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And you've got some other amazing information on your slides. So what I'm going to do is I'll I'll post those slides to A Correction 
podcast.com so folks can check it out. And again, Mitty, uh, thank you so much for, for being here today. Thanks, love. Great opportunity. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care. Bye.